Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 5, that uh, sixth book of the Bible, Joshua. And uh, we are going to continue uh, walking through our sermon series in the book of Joshua. We have seen in recent weeks uh, uh, the people of God getting ready to cross over the Jordan River, the people of God then coming through the Jordan River through a miraculous working of God to hold back the waters on each side. And then last week, the people even being invited to set up some memorial markers, some symbols and signs, some representations for themselves of what God had done so magnificently. And we were reminded last week, as you recall, that certainly there's a place for us in our lives, too, to, to slow down, to pause, and to put some things in place to remind ourselves of how God has worked in particular areas of our lives. And then also we're blessed as a people of God to, to have the, the sacraments, the signs He gives us to remind us of His working. Now the people of God, as we look today in Joshua 5, are preparing to attack the most heavily fortified city in the whole region, this city of Jericho. And they don't know the walls are going to fall down like we do. And they're about to go to battle with some tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of opposing forces in that land. So what will they do now that they're on this other side of the river? Will, will they psych themselves up and get really ready to go fight? Will Joshua maybe find some clever way to build up morale among these forces Will they strengthen their supply lines, make sure they've got plenty of resources to help them go forward in this battle? Maybe even will Joshua demonstrate some great feat of military strength and skill or speak about one? No. Actually, as we read this chapter, we'll see that God is going to give the people of God Four crystal clear reminders of their absolute humble dependence upon Him. And that they will then see more clearly God's power as they go forward. And everyone around them as well will be able to see God's power, not man's. I'll let you remain seated today just because of the length of the passage. I'll read this chapter 5 of Joshua, and invite you to read along silently with me. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way. And after they had come out of Egypt, after they had come out of Egypt, Though all the people who had come out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness 
after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled back the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him and his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, teach us the pathway of humble dependence and the beauty of stepping forth in the things of your kingdom to advance your kingdom in absolute dependence upon you so that your power will be demonstrated, that your power will be shown. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God often puts us in a place of humble dependence so that we and those around us can see His power demonstrated. And I guess it's fitting as we come into our missions week to perhaps use a missions example to relate this. I know I've shared at some point in the past about Adoniram Judson, let me talk again about him today. In the early 1800s, God used Adoniram, who would ultimately become one of the founding fathers of the modern missions movement, to reach the entire country of Burma. Today, some 3,000 churches in that country, numbering in the hundreds of thousands of members. God led Judson 
to this, but he led him there through a pathway of incredible humbling and deep dependence upon the Lord. In the late 1700s, Adoniram was born into a family, a devout, believing Christian family. Uh, By age three, the astute Judson was already reading through entire chapters of the Bible. At age 16, he enrolled in his college training and immediately met a skeptical, unbelieving young man who became friends with him. Jacob Eames was his name. Judson drifted and drifted further away from the faith uh, to the point to where when he had completed his uh, valedictory address at the top of his class in his collegiate uh, training, went that very day to his parents to announce to them his apostasy, his turning away from the faith, and to request from his father an early installment of his inheritance of a horse so that the now well-trained, academically, Judson could go to New York to join a group of play actors and travel New England with them. Well, Judson went on and did that. Can you imagine the heartbreak to his parents about his faith and about his rejection of them? But after just a few years of traveling with this band of actors, Judson started to see the emptiness of it. But it wasn't yet to a point of repentance and really returning to the Lord. God had to do a work of remarkable providence to bring him to an initial humbling and dependence. One evening he was riding his horse along and a huge storm came in. Uh, there in New England, he could only find one inn, and, and, and that place was completely full. The innkeeper said, I only have one room available. There's already someone in it on the other side of a sort of curtain. He's very sick, and he's going to be moaning through the night, but you're welcome to sleep on the other side in the other bed. Well, in the dim-lit room... Judson went ahead and lay down. About the middle of the night, he was finally able to go to sleep because the noise from the sick man next to him subsided. He woke up in the morning, startled by several people gathered around the bed next to him. And he inquired about the condition of his sick roommate. They said, he's dead. As Judson got up and looked at the man, he thought he recognized him. And he asked the innkeeper, what was his name? The innkeeper said, Jacob Eames was his name. God had taken Judson's skeptical, unbelieving friend from his college years and in providence put him right next to him at an inn in the middle of a stormy New England night. To get Judson's attention. He recognized his need for the Lord. He recognized the shortness of his own life. Seeing his friend from college die like that. And turned to the Lord. Went to seminary. The time that he went to seminary was when the fervor was growing. 
after it had been stagnant for centuries and centuries in the evangelical church, to take the gospel to the nations. And Judson joined in on that effort, marrying his wife Anne and heading to the east. 1812, they arrived in Burma and Judson began to apply his considerable intellect to now a little more worthy task than play acting through New England with his vagabond friends, translating the Bible into the Burmese language. He used his gifts in that way. And over the next 17 years, God continued to bring him to places of remarkably humble dependence. As he lived there in Burma, he was arrested at one point and kept in prison for 17 months simply because there was British military activity going on in the region and they suspected him. They hung him up by his feet each night by a sort of pole system. So his feet were in the air and his shoulder blades, just his shoulder blades, on the ground. That was the way they slept every night. His wife, Anne, visited him nearly every day in the 108-degree heat as she was nursing their child at the time. They'd already lost several children. And then just 11 months after Judson was released from this prison, his first wife, Anne, died. After Anne's death, Judson slipped into such a severe depression that he not only destroyed all of his personal writings, all letters and correspondence that had come to him, because he felt like the compliments and encouragement in those letters were some sort of pride, but he also legally ordered his sister back in the States to destroy every bit of letters and correspondence that they had back there. I'll come back to that later. He reached such a point of bleakness that he literally just wandered around the woods at night in Burma. Until all of a sudden, his brother, back in the States, passed away. And God used that, his brother who had not been a believer right up to the point of his death, had come to faith in Christ, and God used that to bring Judson out of that complete and abject depression. Still walking a pathway of humble dependence. Along the way, he married his second wife, Sarah, whose missionary husband had died nearly the very day that they had arrived in Burma. Sarah and Judson had an Adoram had six kids among them, and three of those then, when Sarah got sick, had to be left behind in Burma as Judson and Sarah traveled with the three oldest kids all the way back to the States. Can you imagine leaving your children behind? But it had to be done to take care of her, Sarah, on the way back to the States going around the southern horn of Africa, passed away. And they stopped just long enough to bury her in what was today South Africa. Back in the States, they stayed for two years to get regrouped and ready to go back to the mission field. And Judson married once again to Emily, 30 years his junior, a writer of children's Christian books. 
they traveled back to Burma. And finally, after that 17-year period, in 1831, after they had only seen a handful of converts to Christianity in all that period, God opened up the floodgates of His grace. People began to come. They have it all recorded and written down. People began to come, 6,000 total, to the personal residence of Judson from all over Burma asking, give us the book about the One who can save us. Give us the book about the One who tells us about heaven and takes us to heaven. And today, as I shared earlier, That church is multiplied and expanded across that country, which is all the more even remarkable because it's right in the middle of what the missionologists call that 1040 window, that block of the globe where only about 2% of the population profess faith in Christ. And one other interesting and remarkable thing about how God used humble dependence to show His power Adoniram had become, back in the States, a name synonymous with the work of missions. And God had used his humble dependence and suffering, not his writings to expand this message, but the writings of his wives, who each had written down about his work, and which hadn't been destroyed in Judson's bout of depression. To expand the message of the Gospel so that people had a heart for taking it to the nations in a way that they never had before. God puts us in places of humble dependence so that we and those around us can see His power. It's evident across the scope of Scripture 2 Corinthians 4, 7, you don't need to turn there, but reminds us that we have this treasure, that's the treasure of the Gospel, where? In jars of clay. Simple, humble vessels like you and me, like Judson and his wives. The Gospel is in those humble places. Why does it say in 2 Corinthians To show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. John 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. God loves for us to be in a place of humble dependence so that He can display His power, so that we can see it and experience it. Well, what's the problem here? The problem for us is we tend to be pretty prideful people. Probably number one on most of our checklists of sins, the fountain of all other sins, and we also like to be really self-sufficient. Not only problematic because... Being prideful and self-sufficient is sinful, but it's problematic because God's power can't be unleashed when we're in that place of pridefulness and self-sufficiency. It's in humbleness and dependence that His power 
is displayed. Look at our passage today and all the ways this is shown, okay? You might have wondered about what is all this stuff about circumcision, Passover, manna, and this commander of the Lord, angel guy appearing. Walk with me through it for a couple of minutes. I'll show you how it displays to us amazing dependence and humility. In verse 2 through 9, it describes the situation of the, these fighting men about to go to battle, all being circumcised. What's that about? It's a reminder that they're dependent upon the covenant promises of God and being the people of God, that, that, that it's their identity as the people of God that will sustain them, not their own ability or strength. They're being marked. It's a mark. It's a symbol of their identity as God's people. That he'll give them the strength. Well, we've had some serious time this morning considering the life of Judson. You'll recall as we think about circumcision, the story uh, may have, you may have heard before of the two young boys who were in the hospital beds together beside each other in a hospital outside the operating room. One young man leaned over to the other one and said, what, you know, what are you doing here? What are you in for? He was nervous and said, well, I'm in here to get my tonsils taken out and I'm a little bit concerned. The other kid said, ah, that's a breeze. You got nothing to worry about. Had that done and, you know, they, they take them out and give you a bunch of ice cream and jello. It's a cakewalk. No big deal. Second kid then asked him, well, what are you in here for? First one said, a circumcision. Second kid said, whoa. Buddy, I'll tell you what, I had that when I was born, couldn't walk for a year. (laughs) Gets to the point, doesn't it? What in the world is God doing having, sorry to be specific, an all-male army debilitated in this way before they're supposed to go fight? makes no sense on the surface. It's all about them being in a place of humble dependence upon Him. That's where God wants Him. That's where He's going to prosper. And think about it today. We don't even go into an athletic contest without the three levels of Gatorade that you're supposed to drink. Right? You've got to have one they've designed for when you're before you're playing the sport, one while you're playing the sport, and apparently one afterwards. God's saying, I'm going to send you into battle into this huge contest, I'm going to debilitate you beforehand. Why? What stronger place to be than identified as the people of God, than marked as ones who are totally dependent upon His covenant promises. That's where their strength will come from. That's where our strength and our power as the people of God comes from as well. Our identity in Christ, not in ourselves. Look at the next part of the passage, verses 10 and 11. It describes this Passover. Okay, If that first part was a reminder of the people of God being in dependence and getting strength through being identified as the people of God and His power, here we have them getting strength from remembering God's rescue, God's salvation of them. What was Passover about? Passover was in Egypt at the end of the ten plagues. And the angel of death was going to be coming across the land. And they all hunkered down in their homes and had this meal. And the, the firstborn was going to be taken across the land. And the only way 
that you could be shielded, that you could be protected. To have God's grace was to mark your door with what? With the blood of a lamb. Just as we too. The only way we go forward as the people of God, the only way we have His power is to be marked by what Jesus has done. By the work of the perfect Lamb of God. Look at verse 12. This is bizarre as well. Okay, I don't think I even realized this before I was reading this passage this week. They've been getting the manna all the way through, going back. Remember when they started getting manna back in the earlier Exodus and so forth. Now, to you and me, think about this for a minute. To you and I, we'd say, okay, getting bread down from heaven is kind of unusual. That seems like an unreliable thing. But we need to, we need to flip things around for us. And, and, and to us, going and getting crops and farm, so forth, from the land, seems like a reliable thing. We can do that. Okay? But think about their situation. They've had 40 years of getting this food, this sustenance, down from heaven. That's the dependable means. That's what they're used to getting. And they've never known or participated for this time in getting their own crops from the land. All right, I just want you, that, that's what I think this is about, is saying, wow, okay, not only are you in this new land, we've, you, we've debilitated you physically, we've reminded you of your great need of salvation in a, in a Redeemer in the Passover uh, assembly, assembling for Passover, now we're also going to remove your food supply. Don't they say an army marches on its stomach? Crazy, crazy to do this, unless God wants them to be so mindful of the need to be humbled and dependence upon them, upon Him. The last thing, the angel of the Lord. Verse 13 through the end of the chapter. There's a lot here too, but I think what this is about, God's not just content to make sure that the populace in general of the Israelites is in a place of humble dependence. He wants to make a specific point and a specific message to the leader of God's people. That he needs to be in a place of humble dependence as well. You see what happens when he encounters this commander, this angelic being, being of some sort, representing the Lord, that he bows to his knees. And it's a reminder for all of us that are leading in any capacity, heading up anything from children's Sunday school to a life group, to the praise team, to a pastor, to an officer in the church, to whatever your particular leadership role might be in the things of the Lord, that we've always got to be in a place of humble dependence. And let me show you just a couple other things from this, and then we'll conclude. That's, uh, that's amazing to me. Joshua asked this angel, I mean, imagine, he probably had to be a little bit put back. They're stuck. They've gotten on the other side of this river, and, uh, and now they've debilitated themselves, and now they've got to figure out how to get food, and he's looking for kind of some good news, or I would be anyway. Give me some good news, Lord. And then he meets up with this commander of the Lord's army and asks him, hey, are you for us, or are you for them? What's the answer he's wanting? You're for us. I want you to be on our team. Get on, give, give me the big draft pick, right? I want the best draft pick coming out of high school on my team. And the angel of the Lord says, no. That's his answer. He just tells them who he is and that he's come. And I think it's a reminder 
just as we saw in the New Testament, you remember a lot of the folks in, in Israel at the time that Jesus was preaching, they had kind of a, a confidence in just who they were. They were children of Abraham, perhaps. And they weren't really concerned about seeking the Lord or about receiving Jesus or about recognizing who he was because they thought they had it all together in and of themselves. We're the people of God. We're all set. We know God is with us and he's on our plan. He's on our team. And Jesus had such a hard time getting through to those folks because they weren't in a place of humble dependence. I think the angel of the Lord is saying, you know what? I'm happy to use Israel. I'm going to use Israel for my purposes. But I'm not here to be relegated to just somebody's superhero on somebody's team. I'm doing my work, and I'll choose to use you all if you would desire to be used and want to be used. My plan is not tied to you, however. And we see that throughout the Scriptures as it comes into the New Testament period. And Jesus comes. And calls people to surrender to Him in humble dependence. And some will and some won't. And then one last little thing. Joshua here is standing, I guess, face to face with this impressive, powerful being who he's humbled from and then I guess drops down. He falls on his face. And he says to Joshua, Take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy ground interesting interesting again joshua he's got these prophecies he's got this message that he's going to be able to go in and lead these people to take over a huge expanse of land acres and acres and miles and miles and what does god do to prepare him for that he reminds him that even the little square that he's standing on or the square that he's fallen on his face on It's holy ground. It's God's territory. Just like every inch of this globe is God's territory. And every square foot that you and I step on and live in is God's territory as well. Humbling. Humbling. To recognize that we can't take a step forward without God's power sustaining us. That's what the Scripture says. We live and move and have our breathing in Him. That we can't have any provision just like they didn't have any bread, any manna, unless God provides that for us. That we can't do anything and be anything in the kingdom of God without the saving work of one who would mark that door and spare us from God's wrath. And that the only way we can go forward is being marked, being identified through faith, through aligning ourselves with God's people for His kingdom. God delights to humble us, bring us to a place of dependence so that He can display to us and to the world around us His amazing power. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we rejoice, Lord, to see that You delight to work in our lives and to display Your power. And yet we're intimidated by this, Lord, because we've got a big problem with what we just considered from Your Word. 
And that is that we hate being humbled and we hate being dependent in and of ourselves. And so, Lord, I ask that you would take these truths from your word and impress them on all our hearts. Lord, that we'd be able to walk with you as you desire. But more than that, Lord, that we'd be given your power to do what you've called us to. To walk in that strength and not in our own. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.